thank you all for coming today. And uh, I want to thank all of you for being here. It's our honor to have Deputy, Deputy Secretary of State Steve Began here today to testify on U.S. policy regarding the People's Republic of China. I had originally planned to hold this hearing back in March. However, the need to focus on the COVID-19 prevented us from doing that. Even as we continue to address the pandemic and its impact on U.S. citizens, it is important that this committee continue its work on the world's most pressing foreign policy challenges. Obviously, China is one of those. This is especially the case of the topic we're discussing today. As the Trump administration has correctly recognized, China is a strategic and global competitor of the United States. It will be the greatest foreign policy challenge the United States faces in the decades to come. The policies of the Chinese Communist Party undermine U.S. interests and values, including those we share with allies and partners around the world. COVID-19 has brought this challenge to the forefront of American life. We now know just how much the Chinese Communist Party's decisions and actions directly affect U.S. citizens, our allies and partners, and the entire world. And we know not even a global pandemic will stop China's aggressive behavior, whether that's in Hong Kong, the South China Sea, or the Indian border. Over the last three years, the Trump administration has taken numerous steps to put the United States on a stronger path to competing with China. Last week, I was glad to see uh, long overdue sanctions on, uh, on Chinese Communist Party officials for human rights uh, abuses in Tibet and elsewhere. I was also pleased, and we declared, I, I was also pleased that we declared China's claims in the South China Sea as unlawful and deployed two carrier battle groups there for exercises. And after the Chinese Communist Party crushed Hong Kong's autonomy, the president made the tough but necessary decision to end certain types of special treatment for Hong Kong. In May, the administration published a report on the implementation of its China strategy that goes into more detail. So this is a good time for this committee to conduct oversight regarding our objectives, what we've done, and where we go from here. This is also an opportunity to discuss China legislation put forward by members of this committee and others. This week, I introduced the Strengthening Trade, uh, Regional Alliances, Technology, Economic, and Geopolitical Initiatives Concerning China, or the Strategic Act. It is a comprehensive approach to China with concrete policies in several key areas uh, of the competition. I'll describe some of them briefly. We must continue our focus on China's anti-competitive economic policies. The Chinese government engages in intellectual property theft and massive financing of Chinese com companies. And the most abusive anti-free market tactic of forced technology. This is a horrible practice. Forced technology transfer. That it, this is a horrible practice. It's reprehensible. These policies are designed to push others out of the market and create monopolies. Innovative American companies like Micron Technologies, based in my home state of Idaho, know these challenges well. Their intellectual property was stolen by a Chinese company who then patented that technology in China and sued Micron. The Strategic Act authorizes new tools for U.S. companies to address the harms caused by such policies, among several other provisions. To maintain our economic and technological edge, it's not enough to just push back on what China is doing. We also have to strengthen and invest in ourselves. 
In other committees, I have focused uh, on this issue by supporting legislation promoting U.S. manufacturing of critical technologies, fortifying cybersecurity for our infrastructure and small businesses, and strengthening our technology workforce. The, the Strategic Act focuses on increasing technology collaboration with allies and partners. America is the world hub for innovation, and we can boost that innovation further by working with our highly capable partners. If we do, we will all be in a better position to develop the technologies of the future and ensure they are used to uphold individual freedom, human rights, and prosperity. Finally, I want to stress the importance of deterrence. The United States, of course, does not seek any sort of military confrontation with China. However, China's military is getting bigger, more capable, and becoming more aggressive. In the Indo-Pacific region, we should all be a lot more worried about the Chinese Communist Party's plans for Taiwan, given what it just did to Hong Kong. In addition to the South China Sea, Japan faces almost daily incursions and pressure in the East China Sea. Beyond the region, China's Belt and Road Initiative is also helping the Chinese military expands its, expand its presence. We have to make it completely clear to the Chinese Communist Party that we are willing and able to defend our interests. That means reaffirming our, our commitments to our Indo-Pacific allies, even as they need to take on a larger role in defending the interests we share. The Strategic Act focuses on key steps for advancing defense cooperation with our allies, including advocating for several difficult but important policy changes. I want to stress that this bill that I've introduced does not, does not seek to block China. Rather, what it does is it offers prosperity. It offers an invitation to join the international community and operate under the rule of law and under international norms. If that happens, we all will prosper. We should not miss the bipartisan opportunity that we have today uh, to address these things. I'll close with a note about bipartisanship. Time and time again on everything from human rights to investment screening, the Senate has worked across the aisle on China. Unfortunately, in recent months, that has become a lot harder. We have a long road ahead of us in this competition. We cannot allow partisanship to get in the way, even in an election year. Whatever happens in November, China will remain an issue. If we do not work together, the United, uh, the United States as a whole will be weaker. I introduce this bill to push forward a serious and bipartisan conversation about the Senate's role in advancing an effective strategy of competition. I want to thank several of my colleagues on this committee from both sides of the aisle in joining me on that effort. There is both Republican and Democrat input into this bill, not only from this committee, also from uh, the think tanks around Washington, D.C., including Democrat think tanks. And I hope this will be the start of more cooperation uh, to come. Uh, when we get to a final bill, I'm very hopeful that that bill will contain items that everyone has an interest in. There's been a number of people that have introduced bills. I know the ranking member is about to introduce a bill. I have no doubt that there'll be things in there that uh, we can all embrace. And I hope as we get to a final bill, we will have things that uh, we can embrace on a bipartisan basis. With that, I'll turn it over to the ranking member, Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. <clears throat> uh, Secretary Began, uh, my thanks for joining us here today, especially as it's been so long since we've had a senior administration witness before the committee. As you and I have discussed in the past, I think the administration is asking the right questions about China and the U.S.-China relationship. Unfortunately, however, I find that the administration's strategies and policies fall well short of answering the enormity of the challenge. We need instead, as the title of this hearing suggests, an effective China strategy. 
The China of 2020 is not the China of 1972 or even the China of 2000 or 2010. China today is challenging the United States across every dimension of power, political, diplomatic, economic, innovation, military, even cultural, and with an alternative and deeply disturbing model for global governance. China today, led by the Communist Party and propelled by Xi Jinping, hypernationalism is unlike any challenge we have faced as a nation before. Emboldened by the retrenchment, shortcomings, and sometimes enablement of the Trump administration, China today is more active and more assertive in the region and in the international community than ever before. Indeed, just since this past March, China has increased its patrols near the Senkaku Islands in the East China Sea, as well as its co coercive activities in the South China Sea, conducted air and maritime patrols intended to threaten Taiwan, clashed with India along the actual line of control, the People's Liberation Army's first use of force abroad in 30 years, continued to implement a morally repugnant campaign of genocide in Xinjiang, its, crucial oppression, uh, its cruel oppression of the Tibetan people and the crushing of its own civil liberty. Just yesterday, I released a report, The New Big Brother, looking at how China has stepped up its game in seeking to export a new model of digital authoritarianism and manipulate new technologies to control its own citizens and people worldwide. But aside from bluster rhetoric and some hastily written sanctions, what has the response been from the administration? The administration is now taking strong action on Hong Kong. But for months when the people of Hong Kong needed us, the president was silent and complicit in China's erosion of Hong Kong's autonomy, happy to trade Hong Kong for his so-called trade deal. Along with the chairman, I welcome regular freedom of navigation assertions and the administration's recent clarification of our approach to claims in the South China Sea. But the reality is that over the past three years, China's aggression and coercion in the South China Sea has continued completely unchecked. The United Kingdom's change of policy on Huawei, while welcomed, was, I would suggest, despite us, not because of us. And on trade and economics, this administration has walked away from building regional architecture, embraced a so-called phase one trade deal, seemingly, uh, which seemingly achieves nothing, certainly does not address the core structural issues in the relationship, and leaves us, in the words of your own U.S. trade representative, wondering what the end goal of your trade policy is. And if he doesn't know, then we all have a real problem. On Taiwan, I note that in every year of the Obama-Biden administration, Taiwan was invited to the World Health Assembly. In no year of the Trump administration has that been the case. And I could go on. In short, I'm deeply concerned that the administration's approach is one which labors under the mistaken belief that just being confrontational is the same thing as being competitive. And that is my question, in fact, about the action the administration announced today in Houston. I'm all for safeguarding our national security. I understand the importance of being tough with China. But being tough is the means, not the ends. So while there may be reason for taking this action, and I look forward to a briefing on it in an appropriate setting, I want to understand better not just the tactical considerations, 
but how this measure advances our strategy. What is the effect we expect this to have on China's behavior? When China retaliates, as they have said they will, what will be our next move and our next after that? I'm obviously not asking you to disclose specific actions, which I know you won't and shouldn't, but this is not a simple two-step dance. So help me understand where you think this is all going. I ask this because there should be little doubt that we are indeed in a new era of strategic competition with China. And the United States needs a new strategic framework and a new set of organizing principles to address the challenges of this new era. So far, and despite all the bluster, that effective new strategy has been utterly lacking from this administration. One of the core organizing principles I would suggest is the importance of working in close coordination with our allies and partners to develop a shared and effective approach to China. And I have to say, Secretary Began, that the administration's disastrously wrongheaded, alienating, and attacking approach to our alliances has been one of the most disheartening to witness these past several years. Our alliances, our partnerships, and the shared values on which they stand and our reliability in the face of adversity are our special source for effective global leadership. This value-driven diplomacy is one of the reasons why Senator Rubio and I have joined colleagues around the globe to form the International Parliamentary Alliance on China, IPAC, to provide the vision and leadership and build the relationships needed for our strategic success. I know you argue that this president and the administration has been uniquely successful with China, and I know you're good at your job, but facts are indeed stubborn things. Now, before the hearing devolves into a hearing bashing China and the World Health Organization for the COVID pandemic, let me assure you, one, I stand second to no one in this body regarding concerns over how China's paranoid totalitarianism contributed to its spread. But blame game politics won't save American lives. Instead of relying on science and knowledge, the administration has spent its energies towards finding fault and racially inflammatory rhetoric that both threatens the safety and well-being of Asian Americans and further alienates us on the global stage, including at the G7 and the UN Security Council. If the administration is truly concerned about China's malign intent at the World Health Organization and elsewhere, there's a simple solution. Show up. Take action. If the U.S. leads, others will follow. If we leave the field open, if our own country cannot develop a serious strategy at home, others like China are only too eager to step into the vacuum. I know the chairman, as he's mentioned, has introduced legislation today at China. I welcome his effort. As I mentioned at another hearing this morning, I'm also working with colleagues on a bill to create a comprehensive China strategy, cross-cutting jurisdictions beyond, including this committee, including trade and economic issues and investments here at home, which we plan to shortly introduce. Given the shortcomings of the President's bluster and tactics but no strategy approach to China, a comprehensive and integrated approach is needed. I suspect there will be many areas of agreement between my bill and the Chairman's, and so I look forward to working with him on a combined approach. And it is in this spirit, Mr. Secretary, that I implore you today to engage beyond this hearing in a genuine conversation with us about how we work together to develop a comprehensive approach to China, to reset 
our strategy and our diplomacy, to reinvest and replenish the sources of national strength and competitiveness at home, to place our partnerships and allies first. That reflects our fundamental values as Americans. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Menendez. I think in comparing our two statements, uh, uh, we have much to agree on. And uh, overall, I think we both agree that this comprehensive uh, strategy is, uh, is uh, needed uh, as we go forward. And I, uh, I can assure you, when you do get that briefing on the closing, I'm certain you will agree that the closing was, uh, was appropriate under the circumstances. So with that, uh, I'm going to turn to our witness. The Honorable Stephen Began was sworn in as Deputy Secretary of State in December 2019. Immediately prior, he served as U.S. Special Representative for North Korea. Mr. Began has three decades of experience serving in both the executive and legislative branches, including a stint as Chief of Staff for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, Deputy Began, we appreciate your being here today and I invite you to have the floor. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Uh, if I may ask for my full statement to be submitted to the record, uh, I'd like to give a, a shorter version in order to leave maximum time for members' questions uh, today. That's uh, certainly agreeable and we will, uh, we will include your, state, your full statement in the record. Again, thank you both for the invitation to testify today. It truly is a pleasure and I'm pleased to be back as you both pointed out, this is an important moment in U.S.-China relations, and the Secretary and I appreciate your serious focus and that of the whole committee in trying to shape a bipartisan approach to this vital policy matter. We recognize that to be successful, U.S. policy towards the PRC must be grounded in consensus across our governing institutions and across our society. Mr. Chairman, for this reason, we welcome the legislation you introduced today. And Senator Menendez, we look forward to seeing yours as well. These are designed to frame the U.S. strategic approach towards the PRC, and this, along with all the other recent legislation passed by the Congress, have provided us with crucial tools to advance our policies against the challenges that we face. Across multiple administrations, the United States has supported China's entry into the rules-based international order in hopes that China would be a partner in upholding international law, norms, and institutions, and that the United States and China could develop a friendly relationship with reciprocal benefit. Over more than three decades, U.S. policies towards the PRC have advanced that goal through a massive outpouring of international assistance and lending, through foreign investment, facilitation of Chinese membership in global institutions, and the education of millions of China's brightest scholars at our best universities. Where this administration diverges from previous administrations is in the will to face the uncomfortable truth in U.S.-China relations that the policies of the past three decades simply have not produced the outcomes for which so many had hoped, and that the United States must take decisive action to counter the PRC at this moment. As stated in the 2017 National Security Strategy, despite the huge dividends to the PRC in terms of prosperity, trade, and global influence that the United States supported and its engagement had delivered, Beijing has instead cho chosen to take increasingly a hard line and aggressive actions, both at home and abroad. And China has emerged as a strategic competitor to the United States and to the rules-based global order. We find the China-U.S. relationship today weighed down by a growing number of disputes 
including commercial espionage and intellectual property theft from American companies, unequal treatment of our diplomats, businesses, NGOs, and journalists by Chinese authorities, and abuse of the United States' academic freedom and welcoming posture towards international students to steal sensitive technology and research from our universities in order to advance the PRC's military capabilities. It is these factors which has led the President to direct a number of actions in response, including yesterday's notification to the PRC that we have withdrawn our consent for the PRC to operate its consulate in Houston, Texas. There is also growing alarm around the world about the dismantling of Hong Kong's autonomy, liberty, and democratic institutions, the arbitrary mass detentions and other human rights abuses in Xinjiang, efforts to eliminate Tibetan identity, military pressure against Taiwan, and the assertion of unfounded maritime claims in the South China Sea. Other areas of concern include China's increasingly assertive use of military and economic coercion and state-sponsored disinformation campaigns, including, among others, against India, Australia, Canada, the UK ASEAN members, the European Union, and several other European countries. At the Department of State, both Secretary Pompeo and I are involved day-to-day -day in the full range of policy matters related to the PRC, an issue that touches upon every dimension of the Department of State's work. The Department has launched a number of diplomatic and economic policy initiatives described in more detail in my written testimony to uphold and defend our interests and those of our friends and allies in areas such as global infrastructure development, market access, and telecommunications security. Much of what we are doing would serve our global interests under any circumstances, but the unfortunate trends we see in China make our actions all the more urgent. We have organized internally through the leadership of the Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia and the Pacific, along with the Directors of Policy Planning and our Global Engagement Center to align internal policymaking in virtually every single bureau and office in the department. We are likewise organizing our diplomats to focus on competition with China around the world. As part of a comprehensive approach, we are engaged with allies and partners in the G7, the G20, and NATO to highlight the threat that the PRC poses not just to the United States' interests, but also the interests of our allies and partners. We are broadening partnerships across the transatlantic community, the Indo-Pacific, the Middle East, Africa, and the Western Hemisphere. Across the Indo-Pacific region, the United States is deepening relationships with the countries that share our values and interests in a free and open Indo-Pacific. Last September, we held a ministerial-level meeting of the United States, Australia, India, and Japan, marking a new milestone in our diplomatic engagement in a new Asian quad in the region. We are enhancing our alliances with Australia, Japan, the Republic of Korea, the Philippines, and Thailand, which have helped sustain peace and security for generations and we are furthering our cooperation with ASEAN, an organization central to a free and open Indo-Pacific. Our security assistance to South China Sea claimant states and our recent rejection of the PRC's maritime claims helps partners protect their autonomy and maritime resources. We are working with the Mekong countries to ensure sustainable development and energy security, and we have doubled development assistance to our Pacific Island partners through the Pacific Pledge. On the other side of the world, China has increasingly become a topic of transatlantic and five-eye discussions. The Secretary recently announced that the United States has accepted the EU's proposal to create a U.S.-EU dialogue on China. 
to discuss our common concerns about the threats that the PRC poses to our shared democratic values. Similarly, the PRC is a core component of our security dialogues with the United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada. In our hemisphere, the United States is working with neighbors to reaffirm the region's longstanding dedication to free societies and free markets. We are working on improving the investment climate for all types of infrastructure, including energy, airports, ports, roads, telecom, and digital networks. In addition to USAID development and humanitarian assistance, we expect the United States International Development Finance Corporation to deploy $12 billion to the Western Hemisphere in the coming years, all towards this effort of making a priority of promoting transparency and privacy, in particular in the digital economy. Though the PRC has made extensive inroads across Africa over the past decade, encouragingly, some African governments have begun to monitor Chinese projects, require Chinese firms to employ more African labor, and demand protection of Africa's fragile ecosystems. Our diplomatic engagement on the continent will continue to highlight the perils of opaque and unsustainable PRC lending practices. In the Middle East, we have successfully engaged with partners to recognize the core costs that come with certain commercial engagements with the PRC, especially telecommunications infrastructure. And finally, we're working with allies and partners to prevent the PRC from undermining international organizations through undue influence. Mr. Chairman, consistent with the priorities of your legislation, I should also underscore that engagement between the United States and China remains of central importance in managing tensions and exploring areas of mutual interest where efforts might align. But we will only make difference a difference if our engagement produces real progress on the many issues that I have enumerated today. Last month, I joined Secretary Pompeo in Hawaii to meet with our Chinese counterparts. In the two-day discussion, the Secretary stressed that deeds, not words, were the pathway to achieve mutual respect and reciprocity between our countries across commercial, security, diplomatic, and people-to-people -people interactions. He made clear our determination to push back against Beijing's efforts to undermine democratic norms, challenge the sovereignty of our friends and allies, and engage in unfair trade practices. But at the same time, he outlined areas where the United States and the PRC could cooperate to solve global challenges. Among the issues that we could start with are strategic stability around nuclear capabilities and doctrine, coordinated efforts to identify the origins and spread of COVID-19, a denuclearized North Korea that ensures peace and stability for all who live on the Korean Peninsula, peace building in Afghanistan, international narcotics production and trafficking, and as evidenced by the phase one trade deal earlier this year, balanced and reciprocal economic policies that will benefit both countries. The United States also welcomes people-to-people -people exchanges, including the hosting of each other's students, provided that they are here exclusively for the purpose of study. We would also welcome members of Congress from both sides of the Capitol and both sides of the aisle to not only work in partnership with the executive branch, but to also extend your own engagement to better understand the aspirations of the Chinese people. Of course, this includes meeting with your Chinese government counterparts, but it must also include reaching out to the many voices of China that are found outside of China, those not free to be heard at home and therefore requiring our assistance to be heard. Let me be clear. The United States supports the aspirations of those Chinese people who seek to live in peace, prosperity, and freedom. 
Secretary Pompeo has met with pro-democracy leaders from Hong Kong, with Chinese dissidents and survivors of repression in Xinjiang, and last month I was honored to present the International Women of Courage Award to the mothers of Tiananmen. The bravery of many Chinese people who seek to advance human rights and universal freedoms inspires us all in our work. Mr. Chairman, we are urgently taking the necessary steps to defend the interests of the United States. As we seek to correct the imbalance in our relations with China, we must address today's realities while at the same time leaving open tomorrow's possibilities. With our friends and allies, we are standing up for universal rights and the rules-based international system. The system that has provided the world's collective peace, security, and prosperity for generations to the benefit of the United States, the People's Republic of China, and the entire world. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, with, this, with that, we're going to uh, do a round of questioning. We'll start. Uh, I'm going to reserve my time. Senator Menendez, uh, I'll turn it over to you for a round of questioning. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. As I, as I said earlier, I welcome the administration's clarification of our legal position on China's unlawful claims in the South China Sea. But as you know, international law is not self-enforcing. And having now taken this position, it's critical that we give reality to our legal position, or we may find that a gap between rhetoric and reality produces counterproductive uh, and destabilizing. So what does the administration intend to do to implement this new approach. Uh, thank you, Senator Menendez. So uh, as you are aware, the United States had for uh, some time rejected Chinese claims without endorsing alternative uh, uh, claimant positions. But in the recent iteration, Secretary of State Pompeo, uh, uh, at, at the direction of President Trump, has declared the United States to not recognize Chinese declarations. And in fact, we would seek to uphold the rulings of international uh, tribunals that have determined that China's claims, uh, maritime claims in the South China Sea are, are uh, improper. You know, I, I hearken back to 2015 when uh, President Xi Jinping, standing at the White House with President Obama, announced that China had no intention to militarize the South China Sea. Just recently, I typed into the search engine on my computer the, uh, the words Chinese bases South China Sea and looked at the images of what has grown up on the, uh, in the South China Sea in the corresponding five years. It's an astonishing military buildup that China's undertaken, and China's currently in the midst of major military exercises in the region as well. They have completely militarized the South China Sea. For our part, uh, sir, we will continue our, our freedom of navigation operations, which are continuing on an ongoing basis. We are providing assistance, including security assistance, to many of our friends and allies in the region. We are making this a subject of discussion in our alliance relationships in the region, not just the South China Sea, I might add, but the East Sea as well, where there are also uh, Chinese claims on the territory of other countries. Um, we are providing substantial security assistance to many of our partners in the region, and we are working very hard to find a common position with our friends and allies in the region, most recently uh, successfully overcoming some of the differences we had with the government of Philippines in order to reach common cause with the Philippines as well as with many other countries in ASEAN to push back decisively against China's right. claims. Thank you very much. Well, so I'm looking forward to hearing a further discussion of what are the consultations you've had with partners and allies on their statements and actions. You just mentioned the Philippines as one. As you know, um, Secretary, the CCP's so-called national security law for Hong Kong which undermines Hong Kong's autonomy, encourages the crackdown on pro-democracy protesters, 
and effectively ends its one country, two systems policy recently went into effect. Along with my colleagues on both sides of this dais, I introduced the Hong Kong Safe Harbor Act, which would provide those Hong Kongers who peacefully protested Beijing's corrupt justice system and could have a well-founded fear of persecution to be eligible for priority two refugee status. What efforts, other than some harsh words and criticism aimed at the CCP for their erosion of Hong Kong's autonomy, is the State Department actively pursuing? So, Mr. Menendez, Senator Menendez, as you are uh, probably aware, we have used the existing authorities we have in the Department of State under, under uh, uh, the Immigration Naturalization Act uh, to impose visa restrictions against some of the uh, leading uh, actors who have uh, played a role in imposing the Hong Kong, the National Security Act upon the people of Hong Kong uh, in order to strip them of their democracy. Um, likewise, uh, we have, uh, we have uh, suspended the extradition treaty that we had with Hong Kong in recognition of the fact that the rule of law unlikely, uh, uh, is unlikely to be found uh, any further under the legislative authorities that the Chinese put in place. We are uh, comprehensively reviewing benefits that are extended to the region of Hong Kong uh, to, uh, to assess whether or not uh, those should be continued. They're not in a single place in law. They're sprinkled, sprinkled across U.S. code, and we're, we're taking a comprehensive look at all those benefits uh, as, as we go forward. And, and finally, as you may know, the President has uh, also extended uh, uh, refugee quota to any travelers coming out of Hong Kong who are fleeing the repression there. Secretary had a chance himself to meet uh, uh, with Joshua Wong in London just yesterday, where he had a good discussion about the current state of affairs uh, in Hong Kong. We will continue to press very hard in order to preserve the democratic voice of the people of Hong Kong. Well, I hope the refugee status that <clears throat> the legislation that we have a bipartisan support for is something the administration will support. A final question. Uh, we have seen authoritarian nations such as China and Russia utilizing emerging technologies in new ways to surveil and repress both domestic and foreign populations, as well as manipulate democratic elections. Now these countries are spreading their models of digital authoritarianism to other countries who may be attracted to these new modes of social control. What's the administration's strategy to counter the spread of digital authoritarianism and the malign use of digital products and services, and how are we engaging our allies in that context? The same technologies that are being used to repress populations are also used in many countries in the world in order uh, to uh, conduct routine screening and security, and so it's a very thorny and complicated issue to sort out uh, the use issues. One of the first and positive steps we've taken is in relation to Xinjiang, where Chinese companies who have in fact provided those tools to the, to the Communist Party in order to be used uh, to enforce the Chinese repression against the Uyghurs um, are now sanctioned under U.S. law and unable to do business with the United States or with United States companies. We'll continue to extend that kind of protections when we see these technologies used for repressive purposes, um, but it's an important and worrisome area of technology and one of many that we are having to grapple with uh, in, in the world in which social media, uh, telecom, and new technologies challenge freedoms around the world. Thank you. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Secretary Began. Um, since 2015, I've had the privilege of serving as the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee Subcommittee on East Asia, uh, the Pacific, and International Cybersecurity Policy, where Senator Markey and I have led efforts to shape a, 
new policy toward the Indo-Pacific region, including through the passage of the landmark Asia Reassurance Initiative Act in December of 2018. As part of our work in the 115th Congress, the East Asia Pacific Subcommittee also held a three-part series of hearings titled The China Challenge, which examined in a comprehensive manner how the United States should respond to a rising China that seeks to upend and no doubt supplant the U.S.-led liberal world order in their minds. Our first two hearings focused on security and economic aspects of China's authoritarian rise, including China's debt trap diplomacy and military modernization programs. Our third hearing focused on democracy, human rights, and rule of law, values that have been fundamental to the conduct of U.S. foreign policy for generations. Our witnesses testified that we are in the midst of the so-called authoritarian closing that under President Xi Jinping has resulted in an unprecedented and intensifying crackdown on civil society, ethnic minorities, and religious freedom in China. We found that the mass concentration camps for Uyghur Muslims in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region shocks the conscience and necessitates a serious response from the United States and the international community, including sanctions against top officials. We found that the crackdowns in the Tibet Autonomous Region are intensifying while Beijing continues to refuse negotiations with the Central Tibetan Administration. We found that human rights defenders in China are routinely jailed, tortured, and otherwise deprived of liberty. We found that genuine freedom of speech and assembly are non-existent, that corruption and abuse of power are rampant. Just look at Hong Kong and the violations of international agreements registered with the United Nations and the lengths that the Communist Party in China will go to to deprive its people of what China itself not too long ago had agreed to. And now in the midst of the unprecedented outbreak of COVID-19, coronavirus, the Communist Party of China continues to hide and obscure critical information that has imperiled a truly global response to the crisis. This is the China that we must deal with, not just now, but for the long run as well. I look forward to hearing from Deputy Secretary Began today and how we can best address the China challenge together in a series of questions. I want to talk about the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act and what it means to the framework as you identify in your opening statement. But just a, a few quick questions. Is China torturing Uyghur Muslim population in China? I'm sorry, Senator, could you repeat the question? Is China torturing Uyghur Muslims in China? Uh, we certainly believe that there is a severe mistreatment. Uh, in fact, we and many other countries are demanding access to, to uh, Xinjiang and to the You're not camps. willing to say whether or not they're torturing? I, I don't have, uh, torture is a, a legal definition and I don't simply have the evidence uh, uh, available to me to, uh, but you would agree to make that, that statement been... as a legal matter. I do believe they are severely mistreating those people and it possibly And you would could. agree there have been public reports that uh, Uyghur populations have been tortured? I, 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 I certainly find it believable, sir. Is China disappearing scientists and dissidents? Scientists I, dealing with the coronavirus, dissidents speaking out against Chinese repression? China has been arresting dissenting voices for my entire career, but in recent in recent months, we have seen, in particular, this focus has turned against uh, against those who spoke up, particularly early on, uh, regarding the COVID uh, virus in Wuhan. Absolutely, is China stealing U.S. coronavirus research? Uh, as the as the uh, Department of Justice unveiled in two of its uh, indictments yesterday, we have firm evidence to suggest that Chinese hackers working in close association with Chinese national security institutions have, in fact, been trying to steal information related to the development of technologies to treat the coronavirus. Is China breaking the Rose Garden promise of no militarization of the South China Seas? As I mentioned in uh, my earlier comments, one only need to type into your search engine on your computer, South China Sea military bases, and you will see how substantial 
China has broken the pledge that President Xi Jinping made to President Obama. Is China persecuting other religious minorities like Christians? Absolutely. Is China breaking international agreements in Hong Kong? Uh, they, they have broken their international agreement in Hong Kong. This obviously is something that must be dealt with swiftly, strongly, and not just by the United States, but the global condemnation and action subsequent to that condemnation that will show China and the Communist Party of China that their actions are unacceptable of a responsible if they wish to be deemed or seen as a responsible nation. The Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, which passed in 2018, sets a framework. In your testimony, you state that the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act is a framework for U.S. leadership in the Indo-Pacific. It's based on the national defense strategy and national security strategy. Um, in, uh, uh, just out of curiosity, uh, how can we use ARIA, that framework, to address the challenges and the consequences of the actions China has taken as it relates to the, to the questions you just answered? Yeah, uh, Similar to, to what we uh, welcome in, uh, in uh, Chairman Risch's legislation, laying out a strategic framework uh, and knowing that uh, it is creating a space for us to make proposals here to Capitol Hill on budgets and priorities is very helpful. Uh, the authorizing committees do play an important role in telegraphing to the entire department uh, set of professionals the space that we can move into uh, as we go annually through our budgets and staffing issues. Your legislation, which uh, has already been in place for several years, was very useful in that regard. Uh, we've seen a complete reorientation of U.S. foreign policy towards Asia-Pacific, consistent and in, in even in some ways uh, uh, through the openings uh, that were suggested in the area legislation. Um, the more focused efforts on China are going to likewise need close congressional and executive uh, cooperation, Senator. And I, and I want to thank you and the members of the committee for a number of pieces of legislation that, uh, that I highlight in my written testimony that have come out in, uh, in recent years. Um, uh, Senator Risch, if I may also for a moment, I misspoke a moment ago. It wasn't Joshua Wong that the Secretary met with. It was another brave democracy activist named Nathan Law that he met with in London yesterday. And I just wanted to correct Thanks that for, for the record. record. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Gardner. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Secretary Began, thank you for your service. We appreciate it very much. There's a common theme from all of us. We get five minutes, and we can't list all of our concerns about China in five minutes. Uh, there's a, uh, so many issues of major concern. But I want to follow up on Senator Gardner's point that we need a global response, at least a regional response. And the Trump administration, one of the first policies it initiated was to pull out the TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was a trading block that was to stand up in, in some respects against the economic power of China on a regional basis. The president then initiated trade policy talks with China that were unilateral with the United States and China not engaging our other trading partners. And as those discussions have taken place, it's becoming a concern to many of our trading partners that the United States is looking for an agreement where they can point to some progress on specific commodities rather than dealing with the fundamental problems of the Chinese economy. The fact that it's government controlled, that it steals our intellectual property, uh, that it manipulates currency, that there's government control, and the list goes on and on and on. So can you share with us what steps you are taking to develop a regional approach so that we have support from other countries to deal with the malignant activities of China? 
Yes, thank you, Senator Cardin. Uh, the, um, the United States uh, is collaborating very closely with countries in the Indo-Pacific for a regional approach and globally. As I mentioned in my testimony, uh, we have initiatives that have been launched in, in, in every continent of the world, uh, uh, even in, in the Arctic. Uh, the United States is, is actively advancing a strategy to pursue our interests. Secretary Pompeo today is in Denmark meeting with our allies there to discuss those very issues. Um, in relation, uh, specifically in relation to the Indo-Pacific, um, we're working very closely with our ASEAN partners. Uh, we are, uh, we have launched a, a robust cooperation in the Asian, uh, the Indo-Pacific Quad with India, uh, Japan, the United States, and Australia. So explain to me what the focus of that partnership is as it relates to China. Yeah. What, what, are, what strategic actions are we planning as, as a regional approach to counter China? Uh, we undertake uh, military exercises together. We train for worst case and to include uh, deterrence uh, as in the suite of our strategies. We collaborate very closely on combating disinformation campaigns out of China. In fact, we have a regular uh, coordinating discussion between me and my Indo-Pacific counterparts. Uh, we have done, uh, we started uh, in the early stages of the COVID crisis, a weekly conference call with deputy level officials in the foreign ministries of six other Indo-Pacific countries along with the United States, all towards both sharing best information on the challenges posed by China and providing support uh, for efforts to comprehensively combat it. Of course, our Five Eyes intelligence uh, coordination is a key part of this, uh, along with our military alliances. Um, we are, we are uh, every day, uh, Senator, working in close, uh, close cooperation with allies in the Indo-Pacific, and the central issue that all of them are considering in that relationship is China. Let me um, sort of challenge that and ask that you keep us informed on it because it doesn't seem like there is a strategic. I hear messages coming out from the White House, but it doesn't seem to be coordinated with any of the other countries that are allied with us in that region. Uh, the one road, one belt policy of China is aimed at exercising its economic power globally. Senator Menendez talked about Hong Kong and our major concern of Hong Kong are the rights and freedom of the people of Hong Kong. And it's very clear to many of us that, that China has violated uh, that agreement and the special status that we give that territory uh, sh should be reviewed and seriously considered eliminating their special status. One of the reasons why Hong Kong was given that status was not just the respect to human rights to the people that live there, but to develop a more market economy in that region, which was the hallmark of Hong Kong. Are we now in jeopardy of seeing Chinese influence, as is shown in Hong Kong, to try to dominate government-controlled economies rather than allowing more market-driven economies? Uh, I would say that uh, most of China's economic policies are, in fact, incompatible, incompatible with a rules-based market economy. There are some dimensions of, of, of the market that one can find in the Chinese economy and in, in other countries where China operates. Uh, the essential factor that made Hong Kong distinct from the remainder of China is that it, it, it was the economy was governed under the rule of law with an independent court system in which 
fair justice could be applied. The two have to move hand in hand together. China is eliminating uh, the uh, democratic, uh, dismantling the democratic government and eliminating the rule of, long, uh, rule of law in Hong Kong in a manner that not only is eliciting a reaction from the United States, and by the way, many other countries around the world, but it's actually eliciting a reaction from many of the investors and businesses that chose to operate in Hong Kong as well. They are there because of the rule of law. They are there because of uh, democratic governance, and the absence of that is going to do more damage to the, to the fabric of Hong Kong's economy than any sanctions that we could conceive of. And I would suggest, just in closing, that there is an, ex an area where the U.S. in leadership working with countries of like mind should have a common response to what is being done by China and Hong Kong, a very definitive, strong response that was where I think U.S. would show its leadership and effectiveness in dealing with what China is doing. So in, in, the, in the near term, Senator, uh, under the presidency of the United States, the G7 has released a coordinated statement on exactly that. Uh, is statement or action? Well, the, the, G7, the G7 statement is a commitment to action. But the, what we are doing uh, in the State Department is, uh, is outlined in more detail in my written testimony. I won't go into significant detail, but the, the economic policy network that we're coordinating with many of our Indo-Pacific allies is it intended to address these issues across the region in exactly the manner that you're describing. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Cardin. Senator Young. Mr. Began, welcome to the committee. Uh, China's combined taking advantage of a mercantilist economic approach, sometimes predatory economic policies, uh, a, a strong position, uh, and, and growing level of influence within uh, development banks and international regulatory organizations with its Made in China 2025 initiative to create uh, what seems to be a pretty potent uh, economic statecraft arsenal. This is going to have long-term consequences for many countries around the world, but especially the United States as it relates to um, our relationship to allies and partners uh, as it relates to our own economic policies, um, our, our own good faith development efforts, and the future of American innovation and expertise. So it's really impacting so much of our own foreign and domestic policy. Having laid that foundation, how is the Department of State thinking about the issue of decoupling with China? So our goal with China is not decoupling. Our goal is to, is to present, uh, present a set of pressures on China that has it live up to the expectations that the world laid out two decades ago when China was welcomed into the World Trade Organization in, in the years since when they were welcomed into, a, uh, into full uh, partnership with many countries around the world in economic relations. Do that is that China becomes a net contributor and responsible uh, uh, a stakeholder in upholding global rule of law and institutions. Uh, China's efforts have been, by design, aimed at dismantling that consensus in a manner that has created huge imbalances in the global economy and has led to a number of predatory behaviors, as you describe. I would not say that it is to our advantage to decouple from the Chinese economy, and that is not our specific policy goal. Our goal is to see China uh, resume a, a full commitment to the path that they were on 20 years ago when they were trusted Understood. by the global I, community. I, I regret I have some follow-up questions mm -hmm. and I have three minutes left. Sorry. So, No, that's, that's fine, sir. So um, just very briefly, you mentioned China's entry into the WTO. Uh, is it pretty clear to you and to the State Department generally that 
Um, China has not followed uh, the commitments, either the letter or the spirit of the law as it relates to their commitments as a WTO member nation. Yeah, China severely abused its membership in the WTO, and it, it, more importantly, it missed an important moment to pivot in the Doha development yeah. round when it could have been an advocate for improving and strengthening the global trading system. Um, it's to all of our detriment that they yes. chose to take that role, but they did it to preserve the singular benefit that they derived from entering the WTO as a poor country, despite the fact that they are now one of the two largest economies in the world. Do you and should we envision a future in which countries are forced to choose between uh, an alliance or a strong partnership with China on one hand or, or, or with an American-led system on the other? That is not our intention, and, and nor are we going to apply that litmus test to our relations with other countries. What we are going to do is seek to educate them on the challenges that come from an economic relationship with China and suggest and coordinate with them uh, prudent steps in order to limit China's ability to disrupt the technology, privacy, or safety of their own citizens. Would it give the United States more leverage if our government um, invested in uh, large-scale uh, innovation efforts uh, to ensure American leadership in key technologies, perhaps partnering with our, uh, our allies and, and strong and trusted partners. Senator, I know uh, that you are, uh, are one, of the, uh, one of the several members of this committee who have worked with our Economic Bureau on the Global Economic uh, Security Strategy that's designed to do just that. Uh, we cannot be strong abroad if we're not strong at home. And we have to, uh, uh, we have to design our own strategies within uh, our economic traditions, within the free market, uh, to allow our innovators and our companies to produce the best and most competitive outcomes. I'm confident we can do that. That's, that's been one of the enduring strengths of the United States of America. We just have to recognize that we're doing it in an environment now where we have a, a, a near-peer competitor that's seeking to undermine the very ecosystem in which that economic progress is made. Thank you. Uh, with 30 seconds left, in summary fashion, uh, can you assess for me uh, uh, Xi Jinping's current standing within the Chinese Communist Party? Um, he, um, in, in taking power, uh, one of the first things he did using an anti-corruption initiative was to eliminate uh, nearly all competitors inside the party. Um, while I don't know the bona fides of those individuals or whether uh, corruption was, in fact, uh, they were, in fact, in, in, in involved in corruption. I can say that the selective prosecution of those individuals eliminated all significant political challenges, and I think he holds a strong, uh, he has a strong hold on power in China. Um, more worrisome to us is the, is, uh, the decision of the Chinese leadership also uh, to, uh, to dissolve a, a customary two-term limit on Chinese leaders, which now leaves them with, uh, potentially with a leader for life, which is problematic for any system. That means that any challenge to the decisions of the government is an existential threat uh, to the leadership. Because of the absence of turnover, because of the absence of elections, um, uh, and, and because of the absence of a rotation at the top level of Chinese leadership, I'm afraid uh, many of the behaviors that we've seen can be directly attributed to that factor. So you've just identified an interesting uh, paradox which we see play out again around the world and throughout history, which is if you eliminate uh, opposing forces, those, those competitive uh, power centers within your, uh, within your government uh, in a way that, that makes you stronger but also makes you far more vulnerable uh, to blowback. So There's a reason why democracy has served this nation uh, so well for yes. the last 240 years. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Senator Young. Senator Shaheen. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman and Secretary Began. Thank you for being here. 
As you know, China's Belt and Road Initiative has allowed the Chinese to take a controlling stake in 13 European ports. Um, last year we had a hearing before the Armed Services Committee where Admiral Davidson, commander of U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, testified that Sri Lanka, Malaysia, and the Maldives have all handed over control of their ports or territory to China. Um, we know that 40 out of 55 African countries have gotten financing through the Belt and Road Initiative, more than 130 countries around the world. So given the clear um, benefits, advantages that China is taking through that initiative and the challenge that that presents to the United States, help me understand the administration's logic in cutting U.S. diplomacy and development funding for three consecutive years. Thank you, Senator. The, um, the most important tools that we have to use against that uh, are a combination of the resources provided to the International Development Finance Corporate, uh, uh, Corporation paired with the uh, strong U.S. international business uh, community that uh, is more than uh, prepared to seek opportunities and uh, business opportunities in every corner of the world. What we've tried to do in order to address the specific challenge of the Belt and Road Initiative is work on both ends of the equation. So not only are we seeking to provide more infrastructure support and assistance and facilitate through active cooperation of our embassies, uh, which now maintain uh, what we call deal teams, which bring together the interagency components of, of U.S. commercial diplomacy in order to support American companies uh, competing with Chinese companies. But also on the other end of the equation, we have created a program called the Blue Dot Network, which is basically a a good housekeeping seal of approval on major global infrastructure projects to make sure that they're done in a transparent and non-corrupt manner, that they are uh, done with appropriate uh, uh, economy, and also that they are not financed in a manner that makes the recipient of the project fall into debt trap diplomacy, which China has used in several of the countries that well, you identified. I, I certainly agree with that, but is it your contention that our efforts are as effective in terms of um, getting support from other countries, and particularly in Africa, Africa and Asia, as the Chinese efforts? As I highlighted in my testimony, um, and as we have seen in recent months, there's been quite a backlash against China's debt trap diplomacy. In fact, the United States and many other countries in the G20 have strongly advocated debt relief at this point in order to help many of these countries that are severely impacted by the COVID-19 crisis. The Chinese government has been foot dragging and reluctant in many cases to allow that debt relief because it's a major tool of policy that they've used to assert their influence in those countries. So I think the Chinese actually are facing a backlash, but I think our efforts are actually enjoying success as well. We are seeing uh, business opportunities open up for the United States and our international trading partners uh, in, in parts of the world that we'd previously uh, surrendered under the Belt and Road Initiative uh, to China, and, uh, and that no longer is the case. In the end of June, this committee held a hearing on the international aspects of the coronavirus pandemic, and one of the things that we heard from both minority and majority witnesses, so virtually everybody who testified before us said that it was a mistake to withdraw from the World Health Organization. And one of the reasons they cited was because it provided a vacuum that the Chinese have been filling in terms of providing assistance and um, guidance to countries who are affected by the pandemic. Do you share that view? 
Senator, the President made the decision to file notification of withdrawal from the World Health Organization. We have not withdrawn from the health organization and, and not, are not allowed to uh, for a full year after notification is filed. Right. No, I understand that. Ago. I'm asking if you share the, the view that um, we heard from those witnesses that it would be a mistake for the United States to withdraw from WHO, particularly so, at this time. So, Senator, um, let me let me tell you why the president made the decision, and and I assure you that I've given the Secretary of State, and the Secretary of State has given the president the full benefit of That's our okay. perspective I, on I've this. I've read the reports on why the president made his decision. I, I happen to disagree with it, but you don't need to repeat it for me. But Senator, um, let me also let me also highlight that uh, one of the one of the roles I've played at the department because I've had lead responsibility for many of the uh, international dimensions of the COVID-19 crisis is in marshalling a substantial foreign aid effort that the United States is undertaking. The the debate over the W. WHO is a debate over less than 4% and really in the mandatory contribution less than half of 1% of well, the entire budget the United States provides. I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but, but the point that they were making wasn't just about the World Health Organization. It was about the failure of the United States to provide global leadership to respond to this pandemic. And I'm not going to ask you to respond to that because I'm out of time, but I do want to um, point out something that I think is positive and note that I was very pleased to see the recent actions that the State Department took against Russia and its malign efforts, that uh, last week's Magnitsky designations of subsidiaries of Russia's paramilitary arm Wagner in Hong Kong, in Sudan, and in Thailand, I think were a, a very important step forward. And um, appreciate that the State Department took those actions. I, I wonder if you could clarify, was that in response to any particular event that um, we have seen? Was it a response to the, um, the news or the reports that um, Russia had provided a bounty for the Taliban to kill American troops? Senator, the, uh, the recent steps that we've taken in relation to Russia are simply a part of our pushback against a long-standing pattern of behavior that has made it virtually impossible for us to make progress in, in any way, shape, or form with the Russians. Good. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Shaheen. Senator Romney. Deputy Secretary Beijing, I, uh, I appreciate the work that you and members of the State Department are doing to secure our interests as they relate to China. Uh, but I'm concerned, uh, I, I'm concerned that we, we're using the traditional techniques that we've long had. Uh, <laughs> we're using them in more aggressive ways than we have to push back against China and their, their ambitions. Um, but they're not working. Uh, China has not been diverted from the course that they are on. China is more assertive than I've ever seen in my life. During the, the years of Deng Xiaoping, you talked about keeping your head down and, and China would become stronger until the world was finally able to see how strong they were. Well, that's happened. They're not, they're not backing down. Look what they're doing to the Uyghurs. Look what they're doing with the South China Sea bases. Look how they're cracking down on Hong Kong. How they sa saber rattle with regards to Taiwan. The Belt and Road Initiative. The number of ports they have and bases, extraordinary. The fact that the Philippines and Solomon Islands uh, are changing their course with regards to uh, the relative relationship that we've had. Uh, their cyber theft, uh, putting people in our universities uh, to steal technology. The list goes on and on. It's not working. The normal approach that we take with countries that we're not happy with is not working. China represents a threat to freedom, to our economy, 
to our military capability, to our national security of an entirely different nature than what we have faced before. This is an extraordinary assault. And simply employing the normal techniques that we employ in normal circumstances is, in my opinion, not going to work. And actually, the United States flexing all of our muscles is alone not strong enough because we have 330 million people and they have 1.4 billion people. Their economy will, will be bigger. They're already procuring as much military hardware as we are. They're going to be a, an enormous powerhouse. They're blasting ahead. And we will increasingly be in the rearview mirror unless we combine with other nations that abide by the rule of law unless we link arms in a very dramatic and aggressive way and lay out rules of the road that they must follow or they will find themselves disconnected, as Senator Young has described, disconnected from the, the economy of the rest of the world. And we're not doing that. Instead, we're saying America first, everybody go off and do your own thing. Great for Brexit, let's blow up Europe. Uh, everybody pursue your own interests. Uh, and America looks like we don't care about bringing the world together in a dramatic way. I would suggest a summit of the leaders of the major nations of the world and laying out a, a, a process to approach China in a very dramatic way. It strikes me we're, when it comes to China's strategy, we're like the Titanic. We're, we're all running around straightening deck chairs and playing the, the music as loud as we can, but we're losing. And, and I, I look to, to you and ask, am I wrong in that? Are, are, do we need to take a wholly different level of approach to combining with our friends around the world and confronting China to let them know they may not pursue the course they're on and continue to have free access to our marketplaces. Uh, thank you, Senator. Uh, you're not wrong. And I agree with you, and, uh, and virtually every senior official in this administration agrees with you on the magnitude of this challenge. The one thing uh, that I don't think any of us should expect are fast results. We are up against a generational challenge here. This is a formidable challenge in virtually every dimension of our economic, political, and, and social and military uh, existence. We are up against a significant challenge in China. Um, you likened uh, it to the Titanic, but I would liken it more uh, to an aircraft carrier that slowly begins to turn and, and, and reorient, reorient itself in a different direction. And that's what I've seen in the United States of America myself over the course of the last five to seven years. That is that different sectors of the United States, our NGOs, our think tanks, our China experts, our businesses, our Congress, our executive branch, have slowly begun to reorient on the issue of China. And it wasn't easy for us to do. We invested quite a bit in the last three decades in a very different outcome. And sometimes uh, wishful outcomes are hard to let go of. And many still have not. This administration is equally criticized for moving too abruptly and too harshly against China or for precipitating a new Cold War, not our intention. So, uh, Senator Romney, uh, you're absolutely right. It requires every bit of our energy and every bit of cooperation we can get from other countries, and it also requires strong unity here at home. I hope through discussions like this, we can not only uh, converge our views and, 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 uh, and come to common uh, approach on our strategy, but also that we can, uh, we can take that same sentiment abroad to our friends and allies, both from the executive branch and the Congress, to impress upon them how important it is that we partner on this issue. We're doing quite a bit in that regard, but we can do more.
Thank you, Senator Romney. Senator Coons. And thank you, Chairman Risch and uh, Ranking Member Menendez for this important hearing. Uh, and Deputy Secretary, thank you for your service and for your testimony today. Uh, I'll simply add to the conversation that's been going on um, about the significance of the challenge that China poses uh, to our security, our prosperity, our place in the world, and the critical role of alliances uh, and a strong and broad and sustained strategy. I want to commend members of this committee who've worked hard to develop legislation. Um, I think there is um, an urgency about our developing a thoughtful and bipartisan approach to managing our strategic competition with China, to confronting its digital authoritarianism, and to strengthening our allies and our joint approach to China um, for the years ahead. So let me move, if I could, to a, a question, Mr. Deputy Secretary. Um, earlier this month, uh, the Wall Street Journal reported the Pentagon has presented the White House with options to reduce the American military presence in South Korea. This information comes as uh, our president has also unnerved NATO and European allies and appeased Putin by deciding to remove a third of our troops from Germany. Um, you continue to serve, uh, Deputy Secretary, as Special Representative for North Korea. Um, you have experience working on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, I'm interested in whether you've been a part of these interagency discussions and how you think China would view the removal of a sizable portion of U.S. troops from the Korean Peninsula. Thank you, Senator Coons. The, um, the uh, Secretary of Defense actually made some public remarks yesterday uh, addressing the exercise that they've been going through in looking at force structure in South Korea and other places around the world, um, but also was quite emphatic that, that he has made no recommendation to the President nor presented no particular uh, uh, proposal to, to reduce troops. In general, the uh, U.S. alliance uh, on the Korean Peninsula plays an incredibly important role in anchoring our, our strategic interests in the region, not only in relation to North Korea, but also potentially in relation to the challenges that could emanate from the People's Republic of China. I will say that it's, it's an alliance that, that I spend a lot of time uh, engaged with because of my dual hat on North Korea policy, and this is an issue that I had the opportunity to discuss with my South Korean counterparts just two weeks ago when I visited Seoul. Uh, there is a consensus in both Seoul and here in the United States that we need to rejuvenate the alliance. That the, the purpose of the alliance between the United States and ROK uh, is, has for 70 years been to enforce uh, a, uh, a, uh, a uh, armistice on the Korean Peninsula against a country, North Korea, of 25 million people, uh, to defend South Korea, a country of 50 million people, and 100 and, times and the economy. is it your view, Mr. Deputy Secretary, that reducing troop levels would help rejuvenate that alliance or put it at some risk? I, I, think, I think what we need to do with the alliance, Senator Coons, is settle the issue of burden sharing and how we, how we fund the alliance, and then have also at the same time a strategic discussion to create a sustainable footing for that alliance for the next 75 years. If we were able to do so, I think a substantial presence in that region would, would strongly uh, advance America's security interests in, in East Asia. I have two more questions I want to get to quickly, so forgive me. Um, sure. I appreciate your answer. I, I'm deeply concerned about the administration's consideration of deporting or refusing to allow the return of foreign students. Um, and it was initially phrased as, unless they're doing in-person classes, and I heard uh, from presidents of every college and university in my state and, and regionally. Um, there's about 350, 370,000 uh, Chinese students in the United States. Um, and I recognize the security risks associated with students from a range of countries, um, but much more broadly, over, the overwhelming majority of them um, have an opportunity 
to be exposed to our ideals, to freedom, to academic inquiry, and I think on balance, uh, they're, they're an enormous contributor both to our academic enterprise and uh, many take back to their home countries a view of the United States that's much more positive. Obviously, if there's cases where they abuse the privilege of our openness, they should be investigated, removed, or even prosecuted, but I'm concerned that the administration will continue to flirt with um, um, blocking or deporting um, foreign students. Um, you may well have influence uh, over decisions on foreign students. Would you remind the administration that our ability to persuade and attract other nations is a tool almost as valuable as our ability to compel? I, I couldn't agree more with you, Senator Coons. And in fact, we settled out in the right place uh, on our policies. Um, I have to say that there was a, a, a little bit of uh, turbulence there, and not surprisingly, many university presidents weighed in. Um, I strongly agree with you on the importance of these student programs, and in fact, the State Department has made an urgent priority of not only uh, administering where we have travel restrictions due to COVID still, uh, the issuance of visas, but with the highest priority being on allowing student travel to be facilitated in order to get uh, those uh, young men and women here to the United States of America for the fall semester. So we very much welcome those students. And we welcome students from China too, as I said in my opening statement, although uh, expressly for the exclusive purposes of study. There's reports uh, China and Iran have reached a broad-based 25-year agreement, which would allow China the opportunity to invest billions in energy infrastructure, uh, provide them with reliable access to lower-cost Iranian oil, um, and obviously then be a major uh, challenge to the maximum pressure campaign. Does the administration have a coordinated strategy internally and with our allies to respond to deepening China-Iran uh, ties and China's increasing influence as a result in the Middle East? So, Senator, the reports of that agreement are a little bit premature. Although the Iranians and the Chinese have been having a discussion for some time, there is no 25-year no agreement in place at present. Um, that's not to say that they couldn't possibly move forward. But it, at this point, they're closer to discussing it for the past 25 years than agreeing on the next 25 years. Um, I will say that one of the worrisome uh, elements of China's behavior is it's willing to consort with undemocratic countries like Iran or adversaries of the United States. And that, that's a generic worry that we have across the board. In the case of Iran, we have a comprehensive strategy toward Iran, and that, uh, that would affect uh, China if China engages with Iran in economic activities that are in violation of U.S. law. Thank you for your answers. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Coons. Uh, Senator Barrasso. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Good to see you again, Mr. Secretary. I appreciate it. I want to just uh, tell you how much I agree with what Senator Romney had to say. The concerns about China, the cover-up and, and disinformation campaign on the coronavirus, destruction of Hong Kong's autonomy, unlawful military activities in the South China Sea, theft of American intellectual property, and then the terrible human rights abuses that we continue to see today against the Uyghurs and minorities across the country. You know, in terms of human rights, China is engaged in, in truly serious human rights abuses, including political, religious repression. These are attacks on human dignity, on religious freedoms, and, and as Americans, we, we cannot tolerate this. So, Recently, the administration has taken strong actions to sanction China for its human rights abuses, and I strongly support the efforts of the administration. Are there ways that we can better increase our support for the rights and the freedoms of the, the people of China along the line of democracy, opportunity, liberty, equality, the, the, the concerns, the things that we hold dear? Yeah, well, for, uh, absolutely, Senator, and, and thank you very much. Again, I want to emphasize I agree with uh, Senator Romney's characterization of the magnitude of this challenge as well. Um, in the case of uh, uh, repressions and human rights violations, 
in Xinjiang, we actually used the Global Magnitsky Act, which many members of this committee uh, contributed uh, to its passage, and that provided us a very important tool that we could use in order to address those very specific human rights abuses that were identified in that legislation. But more generally, I think we need more interaction with Chinese civil society. And here, I emphasize the point I made in my opening statement that we have to uh, we have to talk to the Chinese outside of China, the ones who really need to be heard and give voice to the aspirations of the Chinese people. But we also have to use a lot of the tools we have at our disposal to reach the people inside China, to communicate with them. And and uh, and uh, I think that uh, ultimately will be to our benefit. With regard to moving to the next topic of stealing intellectual property, another one of the lists that I've talked about, you know, China continues to uh, infiltrate top U.S. companies, laboratories, universities. Seems their goal is stealing valuable American intellectual property, trade secrets. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party clearly attempting to surpass us in economic strength, military capabilities, international influence. It's their game plan. Uh, they're funding criminal hackers to target U.S. research in sectors ranging from agriculture to uh, COVID-19 related biomedical research. Look, just yesterday, yesterday, the U.S. Department of Justice charged two Chinese nationals working on behalf of the government of China with stealing trade secrets, hacking computer systems of companies who are working on a coronavirus vaccine. Just yesterday. So, you know, the FBI estimates that they open a new China-related counterintelligence case, not every 10 weeks or 10 months or 10 days, every 10 hours, they're having to open a new China-related counterintelligence case. So, you know, the FBI deputy director believes China's economic coercion is like that he described as an organized criminal syndicate. So, so what steps must we as a nation take, along with our international partners, as you've talked about an, an international group, what must we do to end China's economic uh, espionage. Uh, th thank you, Senator. Uh, the State Department works very closely with the FBI. In fact, just before this hearing, I had uh, I had a uh, phone call, uh, phone conversation with the individual who you quoted a, a moment ago, uh, Deputy Director Dave Bowditch. Um, we are doing uh, an enormous amount to challenge this as we speak. The fact that those indictments were unsealed, as well as two others that were unsealed in the state of California uh, just a few days before, our suggestion of the degree of effort that we're applying to this and I, I would not in any way disassociate uh, the, the direction that the President gave to the Department of State yesterday, yesterday to notify the PRC about the uh, uh, removal of diplomatic status of the consulate in Wuhan, uh, excuse <laughs> me, in, um, in Houston, um, is, uh, is very much related to this. You'll be getting more briefings um, in a different setting on these topics, but to suffice it, Senator, it's a set of challenges that we take very seriously. And, and uh, it's one that we and our domestic law enforcement partners are working very hard to address. My final question has to do with Huawei. Uh, the, the Trump administration continues to raise the alarms with our allies and partners about the national security risks of, of Huawei and the, the Chinese Communist Party. To me, Huawei is a Trojan horse. Uh, it, it, uh, its deep links to the communist regime are impossible to ignore. Uh, they're attempting to infiltrate communications networks around the world and for no good. The, uh, it poses a serious risk, I believe, not only to our national security, but also to privacy, to intellectual property, and, and to human rights. You know, recently the United Kingdom uh, recognized the serious security threat and is taking action to ban Huawei from their 5G networks. It sounds like Germany is going to make a decision, and all eyes are on Germany with regard to what they decide with regard to Huawei. Is it your impression we're making some headway that our allies are understanding the dangers that are possessed? Uh, 
that are posed by having Huawei uh, and ultimately China uh, so involved in their telecommunications infrastructure. Absolutely, Senator. We're seeing uh, countries around the world recognize the risks of, of, of bringing unreliable technology like Huawei or ZTE into their networks. I know that Senator Menendez is a bit grudging about giving us credit for the decision of the UK, and I will give the UK government uh, first credit, of course, in this. But I can assure you, Senator, um, that decision was the product of lengthy and, and numerous discussions all the way up to the level of the President and the Prime Minister over the course of the last several months. Just today, we saw France mirror the UK's decision. France has now announced that all Huawei technology has to be removed from the French telecom system by 2028, a year later, but with the same effect. Um, this technology will rapidly be removed from those networks because uh, it, it will be obsolete. Uh, 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 the systems will be obsolete if they incorporate it now uh, in advance. So we are uh, seeing significant success in this, this effort, and we will continue to emphasize to partners around the world that we will not conduct secure communications on networks that are uh, supplied by uh, these Chinese technologies. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Brassel. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Secretary Began, good to see you again. Um, I'll start off by saying I think this is a very hard problem. And I also agree with both your opening testimony and Senator Romney's that there was a very well-intentioned strategy for the last three decades, really beginning with the Nixon opening to China, that we had every reason to try and hope it would work out. It hadn't. And so that, that's unfortunate. I also don't give earlier administrations great credit for the way they handle this relationship either. But I'll tell you the three critiques that I have about the Trump administration policy with China, and I want to ask you about the third one. Number one, I see a lot of action, but I sometimes have a hard time connecting the action to any strategy. So, I mean, obviously it's a massive relationship, so there's trade and there's diplomacy and there's human rights and there's military. There's a lot of things going on, but I, I have a hard time connecting the, act, the actions to a strategy. Number two, I think the U.S. under this administration has squandered a natural advantage that we have that China doesn't have, which is a deep network of alliances, often by casting the alliances aside. I'll go back to Senator Romney's point. Um, when, when we want to confront China on trade, we can't confront them one-on-one -on -one with the strength that we could confront them with if we linked arms with our allied nations that have the same concerns about China's trade practices as we do. So when the president started off with trade sanctions against Canada and Mexico and the EU, I think it made it much more difficult for us to try to go mano a mano against China. We should have been working with those strong allies to link arms and form a comprehensive strategy. But what I want to ask you about is my third critique. My third critique is I think the president's foreign policy is often chasing our adversaries into each other's arms. Senator Coons asked about the reports that are in the news. There's a Newsweek piece today about Iran and China doing a negotiation for economic infrastructure and defense cooperation. We've seen Iran and China do joint military exercises in the Gulf. We've seen China and Russia do joint military exercises on their border in some ways that are troubling to me. As a member of the Armed Services Committee, we get briefings every year, and they're often classified, so I won't give you the info, but what I can tell you is we, we tend to get briefings about U.S. capacity, and then we get briefings about the capacity of China and the capacity of Russia and the capacity of Iran, but those are all separate briefings about their separate capacities. These are nations that have had long-standing 
difficulties and challenges with each other. Iran has been, in the revolutionary period, very anti-great power, any great power. China and Russia have had a very, very difficult relationship, and President Nixon realized that and pretty much counted on the fact that they couldn't agree on anything. But as we see, and in the article in Newsweek today, there's a Wilson, uh, Wilson uh, Institute comment that says President Trump is driving our adversaries into each other's arms as they seek to amass power at a moment of apparent American indecision. How much at the State Department are you guys looking at this question, the relationships between these adversaries, China, Russia, Iran, Turkey, whether they're getting closer, how much a threatened combination of capacities, military, economic, diplomatic, pose a, a multiplied threat to the United States? Thank you, Senator. Uh, just very quickly on your first two points, let me assure you that we seek the same goals of coherent strategy and closest possible cooperation with our allies. The United States is a big and sprawling democracy, and occasionally we get in our own way on both of those. But it is our aspiration, and it's something that we work on at the State Department every day. Uh, and the President has given us clear direction on the China strategy that's going to help us uh, move, uh, move uh, I think, in a more orderly way across the administration uh, in that direction. On your question, I have to tell you, honestly, uh, we spend less time worrying about uh, our, allies, our adversaries working in concert with each other, although it is worrisome, and more about countries maybe in the middle. Um, so it's, it's inconceivable to me that we are going to have an in, a, a, a cooperative relationship with uh, a Venezuela ruled by Maduro, a Syria ruled by Assad, unfortunately a Russia ruled by Putin, um, and so, or an Iran uh, uh, ruled by the Ayatollahs. Um, it's the other countries, the Belt and Road Initiative countries that, that um, was, were previously mentioned, uh, and also uh, countries that have been in discussions with the Chinese about military basing or presence, countries like the UAE or Djibouti, where we really have to apply ourselves, and we do. Um, I, uh, I, as I mentioned, I did a weekly phone call with my uh, Indo-Pacific partners, India, China, excuse me, India, Japan, Korea, Vietnam, New Zealand, Australia, and the United States, my counterparts. And one night after that uh, weekly call happened, happened, happens late on Thursday evenings, um, I, uh, I turned to my team and I asked, do you suppose, what do you wonder that, what that call would have sounded like tonight if it was China, Russia, Syria, Venezuela, and Iran? I can tell you, from our allies' point of view, it is a rich discussion anchored in historic shared interests and shared values that allow us to build natural cooperation as long as we can get out of our own ways. And it's not just us, incidentally, many times our challenges come from our partners as well, but we work through those as friends and allies. Um, we have to do that with friends and allies. We have to do that with the countries in the middle. I'm less optimistic that we're gonna find common cause uh, with, the, uh, with the adversaries. Unfortunately, it, it is the case that they will find common cause with each other. I just, I, that's a, an illuminating answer, and I just would, would hope, and I don't need to ask it because I'm sure you're doing it, as we watch these adversaries who have traditionally been opposed to each other get closer and closer and closer and do more and more together, we do need to be paying attention to that. We do, but and just as our relationships are based upon shared interests and shared values, theirs are very transactional. Um, the United States has been a long-standing partner of countries like Australia, New Zealand, India, right. Japan, South Korea, and there's no doubt in the minds of those people what the long-term orientation of the United States is in our interests and values with them. Um, Russia and China, maybe not so much. Thanks, Mr. Chairman.
Thank you, uh, Senator Kane. Senator Perdue. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and Secretary, thank you for being here. I agree with That was a great comment there. Um, Sorry, that was there's Huawei. A we that, there's a weather warning, but I think we're pretty That was safe. Huawei checking in on our uh, hearing. <laughs> I, you know, I find myself always in these, these hearings, Mr. Chairman and Secretary, agreeing with my good friend from Virginia, uh, Senator Kane. Um, we disagree on some things uh, in terms of, of causative factors, but this is a very complicated um, relationship we have. Uh, we've, we got it wrong for the last 30 years, 40 years really. Um, I've lived over there, I, I've got a background and, and I've watched this develop. Deng Xiaoping, I think, sold us a bill of goods. Uh, Michael Pillsbury has written a book, uh, 100 Year Marathon, that acknowledges that we all got it wrong, all of us. It's not, it has nothing to do with policies or politics or anything else, it's just we got it wrong. We now see what they're trying to do and the vacuum that was created in the last administration, frankly, in foreign policy, created a vacuum that, that they stepped into. The Chinese culture never tells you what they're going to do unless they've decided you don't have the wherewithal or the will to stop them. And in 2013, they put out the Main China 2025 where they told the world they're going to dominate us in 12 areas of technology, and they're making huge investments to do that. They developed the Belt Road Initiative. Why? Because there was a vacuum. And I want to come back to the thing Senator Kane talks about every time we talk about China and its allies. Senator Coons does the same thing. I think we all see this as our huge advantage. I want to talk about the quad today, but before I do that, I want to ask, well, make a comment. If we sat here and worried about what China's doing, we'd worry about the Shanghai Cooperative Organization, where they've got four nuclear powers in a, a defense-type uh, organization, Russia, China, Pakistan, and India. Now, that's a, that's an odd group of, of partners there, so I don't really worry a lot about that. What I am looking at is that the world's become very binary. You have state-controlled countries, Russia, China, Venezuela, uh, Cuba, others, Syria, and you have the other countries of the world that are self-determinant. Countries like Malaysia, Indonesia, Singapore are all beginning to pay attention to what China's ultimate goals are, and that is to dominate the economic and political relationship. So they're very concerned about that. They're actually trying to turn back to us. I do think, though, the Quad is a specific targeted effort right now that we could put a lot of energy behind. I'd like you to get to respond to this, that Australia, India, Japan, and the U.S. are beginning to look at how we might pull together. Our economic value, and that's how we defeated the Soviet Union without firing a bullet, was that we, we ground them into the dirt with our economy, um, I believe, and we bankrupted their, their ethos. We have the same opportunity here in that the economic power of China today is about $14 trillion, unadjusted. Um, if you take just the quad, it's over $30 trillion of economic power. So they have the, we have the ability today to dominate the economic, military relationship just with those four countries. I'm not including Europe or any of the other countries in Asia that are already beginning to lean our way. How, do you, how does the administration, how does the State Department looking at the quad as an example of a, uh, a relationship that we could build and actually encourage others to see how they might participate, to stand up against the bully of the next 50 years? Uh, thank you, Senator. The, um, if I could add your description of the, the global environment that we face to Senator Romney's description uh, of the challenge we face from China, I think it'd have a complete picture of what we see every day when we wake up at the Department of State. Uh, I agree with you that the Quad is an incredibly important institution. The ministerial that we held last year marked a, a, a milestone in, in how we're going to approach 
uh, organizing our security interests and other interests in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, India just recently uh, invited Australia to participate in the Malabar exercises, which, allow, which is now going to allow all four members of the Quad to participate in a military exercise together that will be hugely beneficial to reinforcing the behaviors that are going to be necessary for us to defend our mutual interests. You know, I, uh, just stepping back, uh, it's not quite your question, and I apologize for using your time, but I, I see our, our policies successful. They stand on four pillars. First is unity at home. Second is close partnership with our friends and allies around the world. Third is effective military deterrence. And fourth is a powerful economic alternative to China. We have to work on all four of those together, but the part about international cooperation will be fundamental. I actually think if we get all four of these right, we produce the best outcome with China as well. Because if China sees that that's how the world is aligned against its efforts, um, it will have the best incentive to change its behavior in a peaceful manner as well. Thank you. I'll yield my time, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. And I, I would just like to make a comment that I think this type of meeting with someone at this level in the State Department and in the administration is so critical to have us develop more of a nonpartisan view of, uh, of China that could transcend um, administrations. That's the problem with dealing with China. You can't yo-yo your relationship with a country like that because they're going to be much more monotone over a longer period of time. Thank you for having this hearing. Mr. Chair, could I just tell Senator Perdue that, that that noise was a flash flood warning that started just when he started to speak. <laughs> I don't know if there's any connection, causal, correlation. <laughs> yeah, thank you for that. Thank you, Senator. Fortunately, we're not on the ground floor. <laughs> thank you, Senator Perdue. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Good to see you, uh, Mr. Secretary. Um, you know, U.S. foreign policy for much of the last 40 years has been about uh, studying the interactions of China, Russia, and the United States, and two of that uh, three trying to play off one against the other. Uh, and um, I want to ask two questions today um, that get at what I think is uh, a continued priority for this committee and this administration to understand how that interplay works in modern times. Um, the first is this. Um, you have um, laid out a series of actions that the administration is taking uh, with the hope of sending clear messages to China about the consequences of its actions, especially when it comes to ways in which they infringe on the rights of the United States at home and abroad. Um, but China doesn't pay attention only to the message we send them. They also pay attention to the messages that we send to other nations. Um, and Russia is at the top of that list. Uh, I don't think we've gotten the chance yet to get a member of the administration on the record with respect to very credible reports uh, that suggest uh, the Russian government was paying what would commonly be referred to as bounties for the murder of U.S. troops in Afghanistan. Um, that, of course, crosses a line. It is a fairly unprecedented abuse uh, of one Security Council permanent member by another. And thus far, the American public and the world haven't seen any consequences, um, not even a public acknowledgment of that abuse having been committed against the United States. I worry that China watches that. Um, and um, take signals from it. So I, I wanted to just ask you to tell us for the record today whether any action has been taken or is planned to be taken with respect to these, I, I think we would all agree, very credible reports. 
Thank you, Senator. Um, I will answer your question, but I am also going to be mindful of uh, the fact that the information that you're discussing uh, comes from uh, sensitive uh, sources and methods. But let me say this, that uh, any suggestion that the Russian Federation or any part of the Russian government is employed in providing resources to fighters from other countries to attack American soldiers will be met with the most severe, the most severe consequences, including those individuals in their movements in the, in the areas in which they're undertaking those activities. Were that to happen, they should expect a full and robust response. I will also say that any such report that came into the United States of America would be treated in two manners. First, it would immediately be notified to the force commander and all necessary steps would be taken in order to protect U.S. soldiers anywhere in the world, particularly in a place like Afghanistan in which they serve at every hour of the day in a hostile environment. But it would also be the subject of a conversation between very senior officials in both governments in no uncertain terms. I think the, the horse is out of the barn with respect to these reports being solely classified, uh, and thus, while you may be suggesting that there are actions being taken that have been not made, been made public, I think we are at the point uh, where the world and this country wants to know uh, what those consequences are. And I think it does have impact with respect to our relationship with other great powers. Uh, which leads me to my second question with respect to the interplay of the United States, Russia, and China, and that is with respect to the negotiation of an extension of New START. Um, it has, uh, the administration has laid down some priorities in order to get to a new agreement, and one of them is the inclusion of China in those discussions and ultimately in a new agreement. And um, were we to all live in a perfect world, of course we would want China at that table. Of course it is in our interest to have China right now before they uh, acquire the same number of arms and warheads as the United States agree to some limitation. But it likely does not stand to reason that China is going to enter into those negotiations because they would likely want time to catch up uh, before they sat at a table with us. And so I think I would just love some assurance that we are not going to give China the veto power as to whether we engage in a renewal of an agreement with Russia that I think we can all agree for the confines of that agreement uh, has worked to limit the arms race. I just wanna make sure that China isn't going to be the one that decides whether the United States and Russia uh, decide to renew that agreement. I appreciate that take, and, and Senator, I think you can see the evidence in front of you. I know that our Special Envoy for Arms Control testified in his uh, additional capacity yesterday as Undersecretary for Arms Control, and also uh, he was up here a, a few weeks ago, I believe, to brief members of the committee on the progress in our discussions with the Russians. Those are ongoing. We are uh, imminently going to be dispatching the technical teams. Uh, to continue a deeper level of discussion in Vienna with the Russians, and that decision is ongoing. There's still a seat at the table reserved for China, but those conversations between the United States and Russia are going. I, I believe my, uh, my uh, co uh, colleague at the Department of State has emphasized this point in his discussions with you, but let me, let me say it publicly as well. Russia has every reason to want China at those discussions as well. Russia faces a far more formidable challenge from uh, China's presence on its southern border. The United States does, and this goes to the transactional nature of the relationship that I, exist, I think exists between the two countries. Um, the history between Russia and China is one of, of significant tension, and the fact that it's papered over today because of a shared uh, 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 adversarial relationship with the United States is not an enduring basis 
or China-Russian relations. And I think uh, many of the experts in Russia who work on these issues know full well that China should be at the table as well, not only because of its potential strategic challenge that it could pose to the Russian Federation, but because China as a P5 member and as a recognized nuclear weapon state under the Non-Proliferation Treaty is obliged to participate in good faith negotiations to reduce the level of nuclear forces that it holds. The, the Non-Proliferation Treaty doesn't say in proportion to other countries in the world. It says good faith efforts on reduction of nuclear forces, and that's what we're requesting of the People's Republic of China. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank, thank you, Senator Murphy, for that uh, line of questioning, too. Uh, Senator Merkley. Oh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, thank you for your, your testimony, Deputy Secretary. The trade deficit between the United States and China has had a huge impact in transferring wealth and jobs from America to China. And in the course of that unfolding, we have watched in a short period of time China go from bicycles to traffic jams to bullet trains. It's not that many years ago that we had a congressional delegation go to China. They had their first bullet train, 200 miles, Beijing to Tianjin on the coast. Now they have 16,000 miles. Uh, President Trump made this point campaigned on this point, has continued to make this point, and yet between 2015 and 2018, our trade deficit increased over 14% in manufactured goods, meaning a higher level of disparity between the two economies. Is this a topic that is, the team is deeply engaged in? Because here we are talking about the surging China, and yet it's the very policy of the United States that provided the economic foundation for that surge. Thank you, Senator. Yes, it absolutely uh, remains uh, one of the President's top priorities and, and one that particularly uh, our counterparts in our economic <laughs> agencies uh, uh, pursue aggressively, but also uh, it certainly remains a priority for the Department of State as well. Um, it is, it is, uh, we have a, a lot of progress that we have to make in order to rebalance our trade relations. The phase one trade deal was just that. It was phase one. It was an early harvest. It was an attempt in a few sectors uh, to begin to write the balance, but there's much, much more work that needs to be done in order to eliminate the structural impediments to a more balanced U.S.-China trade relationship, and we're committed to pursuing those. Thank you. Well, well I'm glad you're committed to it. You're working on it. Uh, 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 Mitt Romney uh, proceeded to uh, note that free access to our market has been a significant uh, factor in, in China as well. Uh, but here's the thing. The efforts proceeded in a, such a fashion that the trade deficit actually has grown in manufactured goods. Uh, a kind of chaotic throwing of rocks at China and them throwing rocks back at us doesn't get us to a reduced trade deficit. So it has to be a much more coherent strategic uh, strategy than the, the one we've seen so far. I've been very concerned about China's enslavement of a million Uyghurs uh, using all kinds of facial recognition technology, other IDs, sur surveillance, producing enormous amounts of goods, many bound for the United States. Should the United States completely end the uh, ability of China to send goods manufactured under this uh, slave labor strategy with uh, a million Uyghurs to the United States? We should import no goods from any country, including China, made with slave labor in, Senator, the recent, uh, recent series of sanctions that we imposed upon uh, several Chinese companies in Xinjiang, uh, operating in Xinjiang were precisely for that purpose. Well, of course, it's not just Chinese companies. It's American multinationals as, as, as well that have operations in this area. It's been sometimes hard to get the clear facts. I understand it's, it's difficult. 
But, but Senator, um, Senator, we've sent out a business advisory to the CEOs of the 500 major U.S. companies, as well as every business association in, in Washington, D.C., and specifically the ones operating in China, that we, they will be held accountable if materials or components made through uh, forced labor or slave labor in Xinjiang uh, appear in their products. Thank you. I will say I was extremely disturbed to hear that uh, President Trump had dismissed this uh, slave labor, <laughs> this enslavement of the Muslim community uh, as, as unimportant in his conversations with Chinese leaders. I want to talk about Taiwan. I don't think it's been discussed here no. today. And um, we've had essentially a, a position going from our early opening of the relationship with China, where we've accepted the concept of their sovereignty over Hong Kong and, and over Taiwan, they have now dramatically violated uh, the terms of the agreement of one system, two, or two systems, one country, uh, for Hong Kong. Uh, and um, Taiwan's essentially been operating as an independent country for a very long time. Is it, is it time for us to start looking seriously at starting to treat Taiwan as a country, not, a, not an extension of China? Senator, the, the policy of this administration is, is to uphold the one China policy, but uh, consistent with that also uh, to fully enact uh, the protections underneath the Taiwan Relations Act in the three communiques. In the case of Taiwan, um, we commend them for uh, building a robust democracy, a recent election, uh, represented the, the true will of the Taiwanese people. It's a tremendous accomplishment, and it's a demonstration to the people of China that a, that a Confucian-based society is capable of, of operating uh, in, in, within, fully within democratic norms. Um, I will uh, point your attention uh, to a series of high-profile public remarks that have been made by senior administration officials, including the, uh, the Attorney General, the National Security Advisor, tomorrow, uh, Secretary Pompeo will be giving some remarks out at the Nixon Library in California, and he'll be he'll be talking about some of these issues. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Udall. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, and and uh, really appreciate uh, you being here, uh, Mr. Secretary. Like um, like many here and in the administration, I'm very disturbed by the recent authoritarian turn in China, from Hong Kong to the Uyghurs to Tibet and across their civil society. And while this is happening, I'm also deeply concerned about our own moral authority on these matters and it eroding here at home, limiting our ability to rally the world, to put pressure on China, as many others have spoken about today. Uh, the sad fact is uh, this administration has taken a hostile attitude to asylum seekers, separating children, some of them very young, from their families. They're doing it on purpose as a cruel deterrent to tell others to stay away from America uh, when fleeing violence. Last month, we saw the National Guard members using pepper spray, rubber bullets, and other blunt instruments against peaceful protesters in the streets of our nation's capital. Uh, this week in Portland, camouflaged federal agents have been taking peaceful protesters into custody and unmarked fans and beating protesters, including a 57-year-old nonviolent Navy veteran. These scenes uh, echo those on the streets of Hong Kong. 
this is a moment that cries out for national leadership, but this president only offers unhinged threats of violence against Americans exercising their First Amendment rights. Many are increasingly concerned that the president's behavior and those of his loyalists creates divisions at home. This committee needs to consider how that weakens us abroad um, as well. Let me be clear, we should oppose any such behavior from the Chinese or any government that represses their people. Their treatment of Tibet and the Uyghurs is in particular totally unacceptable. But authoritarian crackdowns here at home and hawkish saber rattling are not going to help those in Hong Kong or repressed religious minorities. Sanctions have not worked in Cuba and they're unlikely to work with China. There is no good military solution here. Like with the Soviet Union, we can overcome repression with openness, welcome asylum seekers, foster freedom of speech, show a better example. What, what has been the response of our adversaries and our allies to this administration's actions, like child separation, cutting off asylum, and now paramilitary crackdowns on mostly nonviolent protesters? How is that impacting our efforts to build coalitions to push back on China's authoritarianism? And are we facing uh, more accusations of hypocrisy? Senator, I, I generally am an agreeable person, but I have to say I can't agree with uh, nearly anything that you just laid out. I think the type of protests that you see playing out in the streets of the United States of America within a democratic system with a rule of law and democratic rights guaranteed to all, the ability to choose officials who govern them and, and the, uh, the responsibility of law enforcement authorities themselves to be answerable to the law represents an entirely different situation than what we're seeing play out in Hong Kong. I understand the temptation and certainly well, they, the Chinese. They, how, about, how about the part of it where you have the president going for a, a photo op and clearing uh, peaceful protesters? I mean, that, that, that doesn't sound to me like the America I know, Mr. Secretary. Senator, I understand that this moment has excited strong emotions and, and some of them we see playing out in the streets, some in an orderly way, which is, a, which is part of a robust democracy and some of it in a disorderly way that does require uh, some level of, 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 uh, of uh, uh, enforcement and authority in order to protect private property and the safety of individuals. That's the moment we are in, but we are in that moment in a democratic society, Senator, in which you and I can have this discussion openly and to suggest that there's any comparison with the environment in which we are having this discussion and the one that, that brave democracy leaders like Joshua Wong and Nathan Law face in Hong Kong is simply wrong. Um, this is, a, this is a, a, a moment that has excited a lot of passions here in the United States, yeah. but it, let, and let it's me... an uncomfortable moment for us because of that. But it doesn't indict our democracy. It is it, it, the resolution of, of these issues through the rights and liberties that all citizens in this country uh, are guaranteed under our Constitution and by our courts is exactly how we move forward as a society, and we will. One quick question on the healthcare front. Are the CDC, NIH, and others in the United States being allowed to share scientific information about COVID-19 with their respective Chinese counterparts? So, Senator, uh, we are very interested, and I laid out in my opening testimony, uh, deeper cooperation with the, 
with the health authorities in the People's Republic of China to understand both the origins and characteristics of the COVID-19 virus, as well as cooperation, as the President said, on potential areas of addressing or treating it. I will say that it has been a stubborn resistance we've faced from the People's Republic of China, dating back to mid-January when I was first engaged in this issue and the Chinese government over several weeks refused to allow a WHO delegation into China in order to examine these very issues at the beginning of the crisis. At present, we are now in an environment in which the World Health Agency has overwhelmingly passed a resolution calling for that exact kind of investigation under independent leadership. The WHO has appointed two uh, respected leaders to lead that effort, and they are deeply frustrated by their inability to gain access to China in order to do the work that the World Health Organization has appointed them to do. Um, we would be prepared to have that kind of discussion, and I highlighted it in my opening testimony as one of the potential areas that we could potentially uh, open some areas of cooperation with China that would be the benefit of the entire world. Secretary Pompeo likewise framed these issues with his counterpart in Honolulu approximately a month ago when we met, uh, when we met there. Um, unfortunately, the Chinese have not taken up on that proposal. Thank you. Thank Senator, you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Portman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, Steve, thank you for being here. When you decided to step up and come back into public service, uh, I said this was an important time in our country's history. Glad you were stepping up. I had no idea how important it would be. So um, here we are talking about one of the great challenges we face now as a country with China having an increasingly aggressive posture toward us on so many areas, and I know those have been discussed today, um, certainly in trade. Um, where I'm hopeful we can finish phase one, but phase two seems un unlikely, and they continue to not play by the rules. Um, military adventurism uh, in the South China Sea and elsewhere, the saber-rattling we've seen recently vis-a-vis uh, -vis Taiwan and elsewhere, the human rights abuses uh, as it relates to the Uyghurs. I was in Tibet a couple of years ago and got to see some of what goes on there, um, and then recent passage of this new national security law with regard to Hong Kong. I mean, so many troubling things. and. And I'm going to ask you about another one uh, this afternoon, which relates to China systematically targeting U.S. researchers and good research and then taking that research. And we have new legislation we just had marked up in committee today to combat that. But with this long list, this sort of list of horribles, <laughs> tell me something good that's happening in respect to our relationship with China. Uh, an issue that I know is near and dear to you, Senator, and one that you've shown leadership in. Uh, the Chinese re uh, just uh, just in the past several days invited uh, the DEA to establish a presence uh, in one of our consulates in China in order to deepen our collaboration on fighting against not only the trade in fentanyl, but the trade and the precursors that we've seen uh, being used to evade uh, some of the restrictions that have been in place. It's a small issue but it's one that, uh, that we can potentially work on uh, with the Chinese. I stay in regular contact with my Chinese counterparts on North Korea. Uh, it's an important area of shared interest between the United States and China. I wouldn't say that they're completely uh, faithful in fulfilling their responsibilities under the international sanctions regime, but still uh, they do generally push in the right direction and, and, uh, and it is an area at least uh, where we can, uh, we can have discussions. Um, we've, uh, we stay in close touch with uh, the Chinese government on the, um, on the peace process in Afghanistan. Uh, like many other countries in the region, China has a, a shared interest in, in a stable outcome in Afghanistan. Of course, uh, we don't want to see, uh, see the territory of Afghanistan surrendered to terrorist rule again. And, 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 and frankly, uh, neither, neither does the People's Republic of China. There's several areas that I highlight in my testimony. 
where there are at least areas of potential cooperation between us. I will say, Senator, that my 16-page testimony had to be cut back by one-third, uh, and in doing so, we had to remove uh, a, a litany of, of the issues uh, that you have raised, and many of them still are enumerated there. It is a long list and a formidable challenge, a generational challenge that we face with China. And notwithstanding these smaller areas of cooperation that I've highlighted, we have an enormous task ahead of us to, uh, to turn back the challenge from China. Well, I agree, and, and, the, and the challenge is uh, only growing every day as I see it, and that's one reason I wanted to ask you about some of the positive lines of communication that we do have open with China. It's important to have that. Um, I believe that with regard to the stealing of technology and innovation that we are finally waking up as a country. I think that we uh, typically tend to point the finger at China when in fact we need to get our own house in order in many of these respects. And one is not to be naive about what the Chinese have been up to through the Chinese Communist Party, which is really what's behind this uh, and their relationship with their own universities, their own research. And for 20 years, as you know, for two decades, uh, they have been systematically taking our good research, uh, much paid for by the U.S. taxpayer, $150 billion a year, and using it to help fuel their own economic rise and their military rise, because some of it is military technology. Um, I think you're aware of the fact that we have legislation, again, that was marked up today in the uh, Committee of Government Affairs, Human uh, Homeland Security, but we've worked very closely with your people, because one of the five major elements of this legislation has to do with the visa process and the ability to deal with the current loophole in law as it relates to export controls and as to being able to deny a visa based on somebody coming to this country in order to take some of our most sensitive information. So one, I want to thank your people. They testified before us. They've worked closely with us. They've helped us to adjust it to uh, address concerns that some in the university community had. Uh, but do you have any thoughts on, on this broader issue? Our legislation is called Safeguarding American Innovation because that's what it's about. And again, there's several elements to it but one that's very important relates directly to your department. Yeah, thank you, Senator. Uh, first, we're in complete agreement on the gravity of the problem, uh, and it's been a persistent problem ongoing for a very long time. Uh, we, have, uh, we, we now have more tools uh, that we can use to push back against it, and as I said earlier in the, uh, in the hearing, the State Department is working closely with our domestic law enforcement partners in order to address these issues. In the coming days, you're going to be the recipients of some additional briefings on these matters related to the, some of the steps the President directed the Department to take in the, uh, this week, as well as some of the uh, indictments that have been unsealed by the Department of Justice. Um, I will only say that you'll get more uh, detail on the full effort that we have undertaken in order to push back against those predations. That's great. Well, the indictments and the arrests um, have increased substantially. Uh, since our report came out at the end of last year, and we called for DOJ and FBI to step it up, and they have, to their credit. Uh, but I think we've just seen the tip of the iceberg, including 54 scientists just being uh, relieved of their duties at the uh, National Institutes of Health, their researchers uh, who they had uh, been providing uh, grant funding to. Some had resigned, some were fired. Uh, we have countless examples now, including my own state of Ohio, of people who have a, uh, shall we say, uh, a conflict of commitment taking millions of dollars from China, taking millions of dollars from the U.S. taxpayer, not revealing the Chinese money, setting up replicate labs in, um, in China, taking the research, taking the innovation, really leapfrogging us by uh, taking advantage of our relatively open research enterprise. So we appreciate your work on that. And again, thanks to the State Department uh, visa folks for working with us on an important element of that legislation to counter this. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Portman. Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. You know, these are very divided times for our country. 
I have to say, just a few minutes ago, this committee heard a Democratic senator compare federal law enforcement agents to Chinese communist oppressors, silencing and brutalizing protesters in Hong Kong. Political disagreements are fine, but let me say for the record, that comparison is obscene, it is false, and it is grotesque. I recognize we're 104 days out from an election, but last week the Speaker of the House tweeted out a statement calling federal law enforcement officers stormtroopers, a term typically reserved for Nazis and other such oppressive thugs. She alleged that the stormtroopers were kidnapping people on the streets. She described those people as innocent and peaceful protesters. Cops are not stormtroopers, and an arrest is not kidnapping. And people who are engaged in violent acts of riot, who are assaulting innocent citizens, who are firebombing police cars, who are attacking federal buildings and courthouses, who are murdering police officers, are not engaged in peaceful protests. So I would just encourage members of this committee and members of the Senate, you may not like the president, that's your prerogative in a democratic system, but slandering federal law enforcement officers for protecting courthouses and federal properties by calling them, analogizing them to communist thugs, those are not comments befitting the Senate of the United States. Now, Mr. Began, speaking of communists, this morning it was announced that the State Department asked the Chinese consulate in Houston uh, to vacate the premises within 72 hours. Uh, I was wondering if you could tell this committee what the reason for that was and, and what the basis was for it. Thank you, Senator Cruz. Uh, in uh, in uh, my earlier remarks, uh, I highlighted uh, three areas of particular concern the United States has um, that the led the president to make these decisions. One is the, um, the uh, persistent theft of U.S. technology by uh, by Chinese government representatives and agents. The second is the, uh, the degree to which uh, that's being done uh, through abuse of our uh, student exchange uh, systems. And the third is the uh, behavior of Chinese diplomats in the Houston consulate in a manner that's incompatible with the, um, with the pra uh, standard practice of diplomacy. There will be sensitive briefings given to members of the committee uh, they've been arranged now, and, and, and our counterparts in domestic law enforcement have likewise been in touch with their oversight uh, entities. Um, I want to assure you, you'll, you'll have more detail on this, but uh, for purposes of an ongoing process and also an ongoing investigation, I'd prefer to leave it for those uh, further detail for that discussion. So, so, and I have that classified briefing already scheduled this week, but, but I would encourage the State Department to the extent possible and consistent with protecting sources and methods. Uh, to make the basis public. Uh, I, I think it is beneficial. I, I have no reason to doubt your representations that, that the personnel at the Chinese consulate in Houston were behave, behaving in, in ways uh, 
harmful to U.S. national security interests, but I think it is beneficial for both Americans and the world to understand some of the evidence about what those threats were. Uh, let's shift to a different topic, and, and, and that is Taiwan, um, and what the U.S. can do substantively and, and symbolically to emphasize support for our ally. Uh, in 2015, the Obama administration responded to a request from China and banned Taiwanese officials and military members from displaying their flags or insignia on U.S. government property and bases. I, I've introduced legislation that would reverse these guidelines, uh, but that decision could also be made uh, within the State Department by the administration. Uh, can you speak as how, how the administration views this specific issue, whether Taiwanese officials should be able to display their flags and, and insignia, and, and also address more broadly the issue of supporting Taiwan in the face of Chinese aggression? Right. So uh, on, on the specific question, I, I was unfamiliar with that policy pronouncement uh, in the previous administration, and it's one that we're more than happy to take a look at with an eye toward reversing it. I, I would appreciate the, it. Um, the, uh, in regard to our broader relationship with the people of Taiwan, the Secretary uh, commended uh, President Tsai on her, her very successful election, uh, as I said earlier, demonstrating that, that, um, that uh, Chinese heritage, a Confucian, uh, a Confucian society is not incompatible with democracy, and we should never forget that. Um, and, and, uh, and we should only hope that the people of, of China can all enjoy the fruits of democracy. In the meantime, the United States uh, uh, remains uh, uh, fully engaged in, in our commitments under the Taiwan Relations Act and the three communiques. We are providing uh, ongoing uh, uh, support for the defensive capabilities of, of the people of Taiwan, and in fact, just recently approved some additional uh, sales on top of already uh, the largest arms sale to Taiwan uh, by any administration um, since, uh, since the United States recognized the People's Republic of China. Uh, we expect China to uphold its commitments um, to peacefully resolve any dispute uh, with Taiwan, and we watch very closely uh, over that fact. Um, we also believe that uh, there's an important place for Taiwan, uh, for example, in the World Health Agency, uh, as an observer and participating in the global dialogue on, on protecting uh, the international community from the ravages of pandemics like COVID-19. Uh, the Taiwanese authorities uh, enjoyed tremendous success in containing COVID-19 because perhaps they, even more so than many of us, were aware of exactly what they were contending with, not just in terms of the virus, but in terms of the country uh, from which it originated. Um, and so uh, uh, we have a very high esteem uh, for Taiwan. And, uh, and, and Senator, I'll take a look at the issue that you asked us to. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Cruz. Uh, Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I, I think it was Oliver Wendell Holmes who said, a man must be judged by the passions of his time. And uh, I would simply say that when we have federal agents sweep up innocent and peaceful protesters in Lafayette Park so that the president can have a photo op, it does not serve our cause of promoting in the world uh, democracy and human rights as an example. And so I think that the senator from New Mexico, uh, as his last question, was pursuing that with the secretary. And I think we could all agree there was a lot of silence when that took place. But I think we could all agree that that is not in our collective interest. Mr. Secretary, there are consistent reports 
that U.S. companies fail to undertake basic labor and human rights assessments in Xinjiang, in essence willfully ignoring the horrific conditions of forced labor in Xinjiang. This is a particular problem for clothing and garment manufacturers, given that 84 percent of Chinese cotton comes from Xinjiang. Further, recent reports have indicated that a wide array of U.S. companies, including Apple, Kraft, Heinz, Coca-Cola, and The Gap, among others, have sourced or continue to source from Xinjiang. Other international firms with considerable U.S. presence also have operations in Xinjiang, including those who have partnerships with state-owned military contractors that manufacture and supply the Chinese government with the mass surveillance tools it uses in its new digital authoritarianism and other tactics of repression. So given the ongoing threat that the sourcing of goods and services produced by forced labor from Xinjiang poses to the global supply chain, what is the department doing to make U.S. companies aware of the glaring human rights issues that are contributing that they are contributing to by sourcing goods from Xinjiang. Uh, thank you, uh, thank you, Senator Menendez. And I can assure you that we see uh, uh, we, we share 100% uh, the concerns that you laid out, and we are actively engaging with the private sector in order to ensure that they put in place the mechanisms to to uh, detect any entry into their supply chain of goods made uh, in Xinjiang. Uh, from uh, from forced labor, slave labor. How, how so? When you so say just you're uh, just uh, two weeks ago, the Undersecretary uh, for Economics, uh, Keith Crock, sent a personal letter to 500 CEOs uh, across the country, as well as to every trade and business association operating in China, laying out the supply chain dimensions of this, how companies need uh, to pursue and look at their own supply chains in order to determine to remove this. It's not the first time we've confronted issues like this, Senator. I think you're well aware, and you probably have also been a supporter of, of initiatives like the blood diamonds uh, restrictions or the, con uh, or the, uh, or the conflict minerals uh, out of the Great Lakes region. Um, it, it, it requires steady pressure and a setting of the bar by the government, which we have done with these companies, and it will include enforcement, including using tools and mechanisms like the Security and Exchange Commission to, to uh, hold companies accountable if they, in fact, do not expunge these goods from their supply chains. That is our clear message. What's, what's, your, what's the priority for the department on this issue? Uh, very high. That One of the senior most officials in the department uh, has taken the personal initiative to try to persuade companies around the country uh, to take this action before enforcement. Well, we look forward to continuing to engage with you on that, and, and including with the private sector. We need, they need to be responsible in this regard. I agree with you in this conversation uh, here. Hopefully, we'll help uh, further illuminate and, 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 and create the expectations that those companies need to abide by. Finally, last week, the State Department released a 2018 diplomatic cable noting that the Wuhan Institute of Virology had, quote, a serious shortage of appropriately trained technicians and investigators needed to safely operate this high-containment laboratory." Close quote. First, as you may be aware, I have been asking since March of this year repeatedly for these cables and for engagement and a briefing from the Department for this committee on the question of COVID origins, a vital national security issue, to which I have received no response no briefing, nothing. 
Given all the statements by senior-level administration officials on this issue, I find it perplexing that the administration has been unwilling to engage with Congress as to these simple requests, as I'm sure you would were you still here as a senior staff member of this committee. Can you pledge to me that the Department, by the end of this week, will schedule this long-requested classified briefing and discussion for the committee to take place before the end of this work period, which is uh, ending in another two weeks? I will pledge to try, Senator, um, and I will be back in touch with your team uh, through our legislative affairs uh, to seek to schedule uh, such a briefing. Certainly, the level of safety at Chinese laboratories around uh, around the breadth of the People's Republic of China is an ongoing issue of concern. It's been written about extensively in any number of public uh, journals, including a, a well-known science uh, magazine uh, story uh, about uh, several cases in which viruses slipped out of these centers. I hope, I hope we can centers. get the briefing so we can make an independent judgment of what you have or don't have. But so I'll, I'll look forward to hopefully getting a positive. This has been going on since March. Yet, you know, I see Peter Navarro on TV, I, of course the President himself, and, and other senior administration officials constantly refer to these things in public, for the press, for the consumption. But members of the United States Senate and of this committee cannot get access to something as critical to understand the nature of the veracity, the depth of the understanding, and whether or not uh, you know, this is uh, the case that is being promoted by the President. So let me ask you this in open, which is not a question of a classifier. Uh, does the United States government have clear and convincing evidence that this pandemic originated in and was released from the Wuhan Virology, uh, the Institute, Wuhan Institute of Virology? Senator, like uh, uh, any matter that happens well outside the reach of uh, our uh, ability to see and touch and feel, there's some uncertainty around that matter. Uh, I've been uh, part of the discussion on COVID-19 since mid-January. I've had the opportunity to discuss this very question with some of the leading experts in the United States, including fellow, uh, uh, fellow uh, members of the uh, Vice President's Coronavirus Task Force, such as Dr. Redfield, Dr. Fauci, as well as our own operational med experts uh, in the State Department. I will say that it's inconclusive, but that only highlights the extreme urgency for the World Health Organization inquiry that was authorized at the World Health Agency meeting earlier this year to be able to get on the ground in Wuhan, to have access to the Wuhan Virology Institute, and make that firm determination. So, well, I, so I, I, I hear you say that it is inconclusive. I asked you whether there was clear, convincing evidence. You said it was inconclusive. I share with you that we should have all of the facts. But until we do have all of the facts, making statements and assertions that are as if they were fact does not serve as well. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Uh, the, for uh, members, uh, the record will remain open until 5 p.m. on Friday for questions. Uh, uh, Secretary, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for being so generous with your time. I, I can tell you, I, uh, we sit through a lot of these, and. Uh, uh, really appreciate your good faith effort to uh, address the questions sincerely and, uh, and, and in good faith and as best you can. Uh, uh, so with that, uh, the committee will be adjourned. Thank you, Senator.